Welcome to the Harrisburg Brethren in Christ sermon series. Bienvenidos a la serie de sermones de Harrisburg Brethren in Christ, where our vision is to be a thriving, diverse, urban church sharing Christ's love and serving the needs of our local and global communities. Here's an example of what you hear. If God was powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead, he's powerful enough to break these chains of addiction on me. He's powerful enough to break the generational curses in my family. He is powerful enough to stop the senseless violence in Harrisburg. I'm telling you this morning the incredible truth that Jesus Christ is crazy about you. Helping each other to experience God's love, God's power, God's healing. Helping to change one another's lives. Church can continue to be a place, or church can continue to become a people, my people. Let's pray. And now here's this week's sermon. Check it out. God bless you. Hank said uh, that Lily's song would preach, and I was thinking, maybe we don't need a sermon after that song. Thank you so much. That was such a blessing. Lifted my spirit. Uh, higher than you can imagine. Let's pray. We thank you, God, that we get to come together this morning around your word and, and hear from you and from your spirit. Lord, thank you that your, your spirit leads and guides us week to week as we prepare messages. Then your spirit speaks even beyond the spoken word. So that's what we ask you to do today, God, to speak to our hearts beyond the spoken word, the things that we need to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, you have to give me just a second here. Between allergies and tears, I had to stop. All right. So I recently um, returned, actually on Monday, from spending a week with my um, mother and my sisters and their families in one of my favorite, favorite places, a small community called Ocean Park, Maine. It's a small, quaint village along the coast of southern Maine, which was founded as a Baptist association in 1881. It's called a Chautauqua by the Sea. On our last evening in Maine, we visited with a couple that I was friends with uh, from my home church. Their names are George and Marion. I haven't seen them in many, many years. I babysat for their children. I spent lots of time in their home. I was good friends with them, but they live in Florida and we, our lives haven't connected. But they also were in Ocean Park for a couple of days while we were there, and so they stopped by to see us. And upon seeing me, especially in Ocean Park, Marion immediately recounted an incident that happened many years ago. In Ocean Park, there's a camp called Oceanwood, a Christian camp, and I worked at that camp for three summers during my college years. And George and Marion and their family attended a week of family camp each summer. And during one of those family camps, a large group of campers and staff were all at the beach together, swimming and playing in the water. And Marion and I were swimming together in the same area of the ocean. As our whole group started to head back toward the shore, she and I struggled. We didn't realize at first the difficulty we were in. 
But the harder we tried to get close to the shoreline to get out of the water, the further away we seemed to be. Our friends along the shore were worried and concerned and trying to figure out what to do, and we were trying to figure out what to do. There can be powerful undertows at this beach, but this was something greater than the normal undertow experienced. We realized after just a few moments of struggling that we were caught in a riptide or a rip current, and we were in danger. Both of us were not strong swimmers. I'm the worst swimmer in the world. And we were quickly becoming fatigued trying to fight the current. But the secret for surviving a riptide or a rip current is to use your energy to swim parallel to the shoreline to get out of it, and then to swim toward the shore at an angle. So if you ever get caught in one, now you know. I'm still here today because Marion knew this secret. The pull of the ocean current can be likened to the pull of the world on our lives. Powerful, unpredictable, ever-changing, sometimes indiscernible, with the potential to drown us, figuratively. Just as my wise friend Marion knew what we needed in the ocean, God graciously provides for us the wisdom that we need as we maneuver the dangerous currents that the pull of the world creates. This morning we'll be focusing on wisdom that God gives us in Proverbs 4, 20 to 27. I invite you to turn there with me. Proverbs is one of the three wisdom books of the Old Testament, along with Job and Ecclesiastes, and it includes wisdom from Solomon, the son of David, to whom the book is attributed, from Agur, from King Lemuel, and from unnamed wise men. After the introduction in the first verse of Proverbs 1, each section of much of the beginning part of the book begins with the encouragement to a son or sons to listen to their parents' instruction, not forgetting their teaching and storing up their commands within. So let's read Proverbs 4, 20 to 27. My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Keep your mouth free from perversity. Keep correct corrupt talk far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths for your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. In the pattern of traditional Jewish education, the wise teacher repeats his call to listen to his advice. About this repetition, one Bible commentator wrote, a major part of godliness lies in dogged attentiveness to familiar truths. A major part of godliness lies in dogged attentiveness to familiar truths. 
Perhaps this is what Peter meant when he wrote in 1 Peter 1.12, so I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. Truths may be familiar, but it helps us to be reminded of them over and over again. They form almost like grooves or roads in our hearts and minds. The wise teacher shares then in this section of Proverbs that the ear and the eye gates of our lives are of importance. Listen closely to my words, he says. Do not let them out of your sight. Truth and knowledge enter our lives through the ears and the eyes. So we're responsible for what we choose to see and to hear. We can dumpster dive with the devil if we want. Or we can be resolved like Daniel to take in only what would make us healthy and strong, not taking in anything that would defile us. The teacher then gives instruction for four parts of the body, the heart, the mouth, the eyes, and the feet. I'd like to skip over the heart for just a minute and come back to it. The next part of the body he mentions is the mouth. What one says, with the urging to put away perversity and corrupt talk, which includes, among other things, grumbling and complaining, gossip and lies, none of the things that we ever say, right? In Matthew 15, 11, Jesus teaches, what goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them, what makes them unclean. And James reminds us, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praising and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water come from the same spring? God cares about the words that come from our mouths, and we should too. And then from the mouth, the wise teacher then moves to the eyes, urging the young man to fix his gaze straight ahead, not looking to the left or to the right where he may be led astray. We're reminded that Jesus said in Matthew 6, and 23, that the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. The world we live in can be visually seductive. So we need to be disciplined about what we focus our eyes on. And lastly, the teacher moves to the feet, urging the young man to make level paths for his feet or to ponder the path of his feet, staying on the path and keeping his feet from evil. If you've ever hiked on a path filled with rocks and roots, you'll understand what the Lord means by pondering or considering the path of his feet. Every step to be made needs to be carefully chosen so that one doesn't trip and fall. Jesus taught in Matthew 7:13, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. That's the path that we're to be setting our feet on. The wise teacher, coming back to verse 23, which I think is the, the heart of the passage, starts with the heart. 
and says, above all else. Various translations word it as, with all vigilance, with all diligence, with all caution, above everything else, with all watchfulness, above all that is guarded, with all safekeeping, above all else, guard your heart. In other words, though all of the teacher's words of instructions are important and vital to life, necessary to hold on to, this is his supreme instruction. Nothing is as necessary to pay attention to as your heart. Craig was watching, um, he, every day Craig comes home for lunch, over his lunch hour. He works just a mile from our home. He goes home, gets a little break, and I don't know why, but every day he watches one of those courtroom shows. I was working at home on this message when he came home for lunch, and he was watching this courtroom show, and a, a man was suing an auto, automobile repair shop, claiming that damage had been done to his vehicle when he had it in there for an oil change. And as the judge questioned the auto repairman, she asked him to explain to her what the oil does. And as he explained a bit about the working of engines, she declared, oh, it's like the heart of a vehicle, a vital organ. Can you imagine owning a car and never giving attention to the oil? Whether you have enough whether it's clean enough, whether the filter needs to be changed, whether it's leaking anywhere. How foolish it would be to spend thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars on a car and then ignore what functions like the heart of the vehicle. No one in their right mind would do that. Yet people don't take care of their own hearts with diligence. And I'm not talking about the physical hearts, though that's a problem too, and perhaps a message for another day. The Wycliffe translation of this verse says, With all safekeeping, keep thine heart safe, for life cometh forth of it. We guard our homes carefully with locks on our doors and sometimes alarm systems, and in many places, both here and around the world, with dogs. We guard our cars carefully with locks and car alarms and protective coatings on paint and fabric. We guard our money and our valuables in banks. We carefully guard our wallets and our purses and our phones and our keys, especially while they're on our person, often checking to make sure we still have them. How many times a day do you tap yourself somewhere to see, make sure I still have it? And the list could go on. Do we guard our hearts with the same kind of effort and attention? The Revised Standard Version and English Standard Version say, keep your heart with all vigilance. I was thinking a bit about when I would describe myself being most vigilant. And several instances popped into my mind immediately, all involving our children or the children I babysat when I was a teenager. The first was when they played in the ocean or even in a pool. We never took our eyes off them, knowing that such a delightful play area could become such a dangerous place. The second was when they were sick, monitoring their temperatures regularly, tending to their need for fluids, helping them in any way possible. 
And the third was when we were in public places where children might be more easily snatched or harmed. If you've been a parent or have helped to care for children, you well understand vigilance. If you've served as a lifeguard or any other type of guard, or if you've served in the military, you well understand vigilance. If you've been responsible to keep the financial books for a workplace or organization, you well understand vigilance. Vigilance is defined as the action or state of keeping careful watch for possible danger or difficulties. I read an interesting article this past week. You know when you're searching for something and you end up finding something else and, and you spend time reading it, that it, it matters nothing to your life, but it's just interesting. That's why I found this article that was on the history of medical drawings. Medical drawings of the heart. And here's a part of what the article said. It said, before there were written words, there were pictograms, pictorial representations of objects. Pictorial representations date back thousands of years and predated history. The ancient Egyptians, Babylonians, Greeks, Chinese, and Indians recorded medically related illustrations on stone, metal, ceramic, porcelain, bamboo, and silk. Historians claim that the first pictorial signs appeared 30,000 years ago in the form of cave paintings. Let me just take an aside for a moment. I got to visit a cave in Zimbabwe last year and see prehistoric paintings of an animal on the wall of the cave and see burn markings from a fire on the ceiling of the cave. It was pretty amazing to see. The article continues. One remarkable drawing in a prehistoric cave around 15,000 BC in the Cueva del Pendal in Spain depicts a mammoth with a leaf-shaped dark area where the heart should be. Keith, can you put that up? It's up, all right. Way ahead of me. The author said if it were truly the drawing of a heart, which it probably was, it would be the first anatomical illustration the first medical drawing of a heart. Prehistoric societies were primarily hunting societies, and the heart must have been the organ that attracted the attention of man from earliest times because it, he found it to be beating as long as there was life. And he soon must have discovered that the best way to kill an animal was to spear it through the heart. The drawing probably also served as teaching material to young hunters. I can imagine, the writer said, an older and seasoned hunter using such an illustration to coach young hunters which part of the animal they should direct their arrows. If prehistoric hunters may have understood the importance of going for the heart to make the kill, how much more must the devil, whose primary motivation is to steal, kill, and destroy, target our hearts? We have an enemy who is bent on our destruction. He not only opposes God, but opposes everything that is aligned with him, including us. The need for vigilance and guarding our hearts is real. <clears throat> What's in our hearts worth guarding? Our emotions, affections, priorities, values, desires, motives, attitudes, hopes, our will the wellspring or the source 
of our life. Beyond our hearts being the wellspring of our lives, of who we are, Christ has made his dwelling in our hearts through faith. Ephesians 3.17 tells us that, and he has set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Isn't that remarkable to consider? The Lord, the King of Kings, moves into our hearts when we believe and submit our lives to him. Most of us, when we know we're going to have company, make ready our homes for guests, cleaning better than we may normally clean week to week, setting out our best towels, perhaps, making our best meals. When I visited one of my friend's homes in Zimbabwe last year, for instance, when they showed me to their daughter's room where I'd be sleeping, there was a new pair of slippers just below the bed waiting for me so that I would feel comfortable and um, at home in their home. Do we do the same with our hearts, making ready the home of our hearts for the Lord? Guarding our hearts helps to ensure that the Lord will be at home there. Robert Boy Munger wrote a timeless meditation in, 50, in 1951, 1591, that was a really long time ago, 1951 entitled, My Heart, Christ's Home. Perhaps you've read it before. I've put some copies of the text on both the information desk and the Welcome Center in the lobby. Feel free to take one as you leave today. I really hope that if you've never read it, that you'll take one and read it. In this essay, Munger pictures our hearts as a home and highlights various rooms and what is experienced as Jesus enters and occupies them. The first is the library, the room of the mind. The second is the dining room, the room of the appetites and desires. The third is the living room, a secluded and quiet room to fellowship with Jesus. The fourth is the work room, the room of talents and skills. The fifth is the rec room, where, which represents associations and friendships, activities, and amusements. And the sixth is the hall closet, where personal things, secret things, are hidden. Then the essay ends with transferring the title of the whole house to the Lord. Is the Lord at home in the rooms of your heart? Have they been transformed by his presence, or are there still some renovations and remodeling and cleaning up that's needed in your heart to make it a place where Jesus wants to live? When Jesus is treated as a guest in our hearts, not as the Lord of them, we've received the gospel without power. A.W. Tozer, in his book, God's Pursuit of Man, wrote, I have not said that religion without power makes no changes in a man's life, only that it makes no fundamental difference. Water may change from liquid to vapor and still be fundamentally the same. So powerless religion may put a man through many surface changes and leave him exactly what he was before. Behind the activities of the non-religious man and the man who has received the gospel without power lie the very same motives. An unblessed ego lies at the bottom of both lives, the difference being that, this, that the religious man has better learned to disguise his vice. His sins are refined and less offensive than before he took up religion, but the man himself 
is not a better man in the sight of God. <clears throat> he may indeed be a worse one, Tozer says, for God always hates artificiality and pretense. Selfishness still throbs like an engine at the center of the man's life. True, he, he may learn to redirect his selfish impulses, but his woe is that self still lives unrebuked and even unsuspected within his deep heart. The man who has received the word without power has trimmed his hedge, but it is a thorn hedge still and can never bring forth the fruits of the new life. The heart is talked about over 800 times in the Bible, in the King James Version. In the NIV, that count is 570, just because of the variety of translations. To help understand how significant the heart is, the word mind appears in the King James Version 95 times, the word love 310 times, the word sin 448 times, the word believe 143 times, and the list could go on. The heart is talked about over 800 times. Our hearts are important to God for the very reason that the writer of Proverbs states, for it is the wellspring of life. And as the wellspring, our hearts overflow into our thoughts, into our words, into our actions. Guard your heart with all vigilance. We don't guard worthless things, do we? People take their garbage out to the street one night a week, every week, and leave it there, on the street. It's picked up the next morning and sometimes, some, or sometime during the next day. It sits on the sidewalk all night, week after week, completely unguarded. Why? Because it's worthless. Not so with your heart. It's the essence of who you are. It's your authentic self, the core of your being. It's where all your dreams, your desires, and your passions live. It's that part of you that connects with God and with other people. This is why God says, above all else. He doesn't say, if you get around to it, or it would be nice if. He says, make it your top priority. Guarding our hearts is more than protecting them more than keeping them from evil. One writer put it this way, guarding your heart is more about feeding your soul than avoiding sin. When we're tending to our physical hearts, we need to do two things. We need to be careful to minimize eating things that are bad for us. I can't resist, like steak, chocolate pie, and the list goes on. Yeah, I know. <laughs> But we need to be equally, at least equally careful to eat things that are good for us. The same is true in our spiritual lives. We must do what we can to keep out of our hearts that which doesn't belong there in the first place. It's far better to keep the weeds from ever getting started, by the way, than it is to remove the weeds after they've taken root. So whatever may tempt you that you have not given into. I'd urge you to stay far away from it, never letting it into your heart so that you don't have the difficult task of later having to remove it. But if the things that don't belong in our hearts have taken root, we need to be purposeful in pulling them out. And as we do so, 
we then we need to do what we can to put into our hearts that which leads to life and to wholeness, starting first and foremost with God's word. The psalmist in Psalm 119.11 puts it this way, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Removing things that shouldn't be in our hearts creates a vacuum, and nothing stays empty for long. By nature, a vacuum will be filled. One leadership blogger noted that to have healthy hearts, we should practice four disciplines. The discipline of reflection, the discipline of rest, the discipline of recreation, and the discipline of relationships. Reflection, Jesus himself pulled away from his busyness to be with his father, to pray, spending time in God's word, praying, meditating on the Lord, reading spiritual writings, journaling, singing, etc., are all ways for us to build the discipline of reflection into our lives. And then secondly, rest. Pastor Woody preached recently on rest, so I won't elaborate much, but we're particularly vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy when we're weary and consumed with life. We need to sleep. We need to take a day off from our work each week. We need to vacation. We even need to fast, resting from our appetites, or fast from electronics, resting from the constant um, barrage that we have from them. And then recreation. Recreation involves any activity that gives us the opportunity to express our creativity. For some, it might involve painting or writing or playing a musical instruments. For others, getting outdoors and fishing is the ultimate. Still others prefer rebuilding an engine or fixing a meal. Whatever practice lets you totally detach from responsibilities to shift your focus to the present and reconnect with your heart is vitally important. And then relationships. You and I were made to live in relationship with others. In fact, the very foundation of reality is relational. Before the world was created, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit lived together in perfect love and unity. So we must be intentional about building authentic relationships and real community, face-to-face -face relationships. Strong support among our family and friends and brothers and sisters in Christ is essential for keeping our hearts strong in the middle of life's challenges. Practicing these four disciplines most certainly will help us in guarding our hearts. So I've been meditating on this passage in Proverbs this week. One phrase keeps playing over and over again in my mind. It's a title and a line from a children's book that we read hundreds and perhaps even thousands of times when our boys were young. It's the Berenstein Bears book, Inside, Outside, Upside Down. Perhaps you've read it. The world tells us that what's on the outside is the most important. How you look, what clothes you wear, what car you drive, what house or neighborhood you live in, where you go to school, with whom your friends, what electronics you have, etc. The world and all its enticements daily scream at us to focus on the outside, but that's upside down. 1 Samuel 16, 7 reminds us that the Lord said to Samuel, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 
God who both made us and made his home in us, if we've opened our hearts to him, tells us that what's on the inside is what's most important, above all else, he says. At the end of my vacation last week, we spent a couple days at my sister's house in Massachusetts after returning from Maine. My sister, my nephew, and Corey and I went to the Museum of Science in Boston last Sunday afternoon. And one of the fascinating things that we did while there was go through the butterfly garden. There were all sorts of beautiful butterflies and striking moths to see, followed by some fascinating plants. One of the butterflies that caught my attention was this one. It's called the common morpho. The design on the outside of it was intricate, and though not very colorful, I thought it was really worthwhile to see until we saw what was on the inside of the butterfly's wings. Keith, can you put the next picture up? The top of the wings that couldn't be seen most of the time that we were there. The inside was much more beautiful and worthwhile than the outside. Above all else. Inside, outside, upside down. Let's not have it upside down. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Thank you, Lord, this morning for the reminder of how important our hearts are. For those who may never have opened their heart to you before, Lord, we pray that today would be that day, that special day in their life. For those of us who have opened our hearts, or perhaps there are things hiding in the corners that we haven't yet given to you. Help us to have the courage to do so. Help us, God, to make guarding our hearts a priority in our lives. Help us not to have it upside down. We spend lots of time on the outside. By necessity, we spend lots of time on the outside. Lord, help us to be disciplined, to pour time and energy and investment into the inside of us where you can be deeply at work. We ask you to change us as you do that. In Jesus' name, amen. As we uh, join together in our closing song, I invite the worship team to come and the intercessors to join at the front. If there are things that you would be helped to have people pray with you about or commitments that you'd like to make in prayer with the help of brothers and sisters, we invite you to come as we sing.
Amen. 